0: I'd like to read in your hearing my text for today, which is from Ephesians 6: chapter and uh, verses 10 through 14. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Father, we do thank you for your word. It indeed gives us light. It gives us life. It is a wonderful gift, but your greatest gift is the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, your son, our savior. Will you be pleased, Father, to let us preach today that the word of the gospel may go out, that your people might be encouraged and strengthened in your most holy word, and that more than anything else, you might receive the praise and glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I can imagine the Apostle Paul watching the Roman guards. When he wrote this letter, he was in prison, and probably at least part of the time, from what we can understand of history, he was actually chained to a Roman soldier. And it was actually during this incarceration, he wrote the book of Colossians, which I always find interesting. I had one New Testament scholar, uh, professor, uh, tell me that he very likely wrote the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians in the same day, which is just an interesting thing to think about. But I'm sure as Paul sat there chained to this person, he had plenty of time to observe his dress, his garb, and uh, gave a lot of thought about it and how it might apply the Christian life, and that's what I want to talk with you about this morning for a few minutes, uh, as you give me your indulgence. Well, I'll see, Bill, how I do with this thing. My first point is, we are to know our enemy. And by the way, I do have some uh, bulletin inserts that have been placed inside uh, your bulletin this morning. And... uh, the point is to be able to follow along here so point number one know our enemy he is cunning whether you call them schemes or uh king james refers to it as the wiles of the devil his uh, plans his tactics his strategies however you want to look at it he is always cunning and clever now when it comes to satan i think there are two extremes The first one is pretending that he doesn't exist, that he's just a kind of a metaphor uh, for bad things in the world or he's kind of the boogeyman that we scare our children with. Uh, That's one extreme, he's not really there. The other extreme is that he is everywhere and uh, the devil is hiding behind every rock and tree and billboard as you drive home today. I grew up in a Pentecostal church for which I'm very thankful because of their faithful preaching of the gospel I I became a Christian and I'm very grateful for that. But they had some ideas that maybe I don't hold on to today. I remember as a teenager we had it was a big church and we probably had 80 high school kids in our youth group and we had this guest speaker that was talking and I was sitting in the back row with one of my buddies and you know how teenagers can be. Uh, we thought he said something funny and thought he was a little goofy and so we started giggling in the back row and until he, he stopped and said, those two boys in the back row have a demon of laughter. So You can imagine what we did. We howled with laughter. Uh, Sometimes the, the, the devil is just kind of minimized. You've seen the cartoons where there's a man, he's trying to make a decision, he has a little uh, six inch angel on this shoulder whispering into this ear and on this shoulder, there's a little six inch devil, he's, got, he's wearing a red flannel suit, he's got a pointed tail and horns and he's whispering to do the bad thing and the angel's whispering the good things. Well, it's not exactly like that. When we talk about Satan, we're talking about Lucifer, the high angel of heaven that was cast out of heaven. And it said, and the scriptures tell us that there were other angels uh, that fell from heaven. And we generally refer to them as uh, demons today with one head guy, the devil, Satan, Lucifer. Uh, and that's the way we look at it. I want to say a couple things here. We need to realize that the devil is not omnipresent. Only God is omnipresent. He can't be everywhere. Uh, Although he he at times, I think, is present for very important uh, opportunities as he would see it. I think about that last song we just sang, A Mighty Fortress, and I can't imagine that there was any one person or any one place that was more important in terms of the spiritual battle that was raging in that time than the presence of Martin Luther Interesting thing Martin Luther said that when he stood up to preach for the first time He could hardly get the words out his he says literally he said my knees were knocking together He was so afraid not of public speaking but because he was handling the holy Word of God He took it so seriously, he was full of fear. There's another story. Is it true? I don't know. Uh, We can ask Martin when we get to heaven. But the story goes that Martin is sleeping in his uh, little cubicle one night, and he's roused from a heavy sleep and feels a strange presence in the room. It's the devil himself. He rolls over and looks, and he says, Oh, It's only you. He rolls back over and goes to sleep. (laughs) So secure he was in the Lord Jesus Christ. That little word that will fell him, you know what that word is? Jesus. And we need not fear. He's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He can't read your mind. He doesn't know your thoughts. But he's been around a while. He's an accomplished theologian probably has more scripture memorized than any of us here today. He's a philosopher. He's an accomplished psychologist. He's been observing people for a long, long time. Hey, anybody here uh, just didn't get along with math in, when you were in high school? I see some heads nodding. Algebra just gave you fits. And the, the night before that big final exam, was you were sweating it. Well, just think, what if you had 10 years to study for that exam? What if you had 100 years, or 1,000 years? That exam would be no problem for you. Well, Satan's been around a whole lot more than 1,000 years, and he's studied human nature, and he's pretty good at what he does, which is opposing good, and the gospel, and God's people, so we need to be aware of that. Now he has various roles. Uh, uh, those he I'm talking about the wiles here, missed my point. Now, number two, he has various roles. In Matthew 4, verse 3, Jesus refers to him as, or the scripture refers to the tempter as he's coming to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 4, 3 says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He was there to tempt Jesus. He's also an accuser. We see this in the book of Revelation. Chapter 12, verse 10, John refers to him, as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. He is a tempter. He is an accuser. And sometimes he kind of puts these two together. This is the way it works. He tempts you. He tries to talk you into doing something. He'll say anything that he can think of that might work. He'll tell you, oh, you've done this before. One more time won't hurt. Other people are doing this. He'll tell you it's not a big deal. Just go ahead. Just, it's, just do it. And so whatever it might be that you're being tempted with, you do it. Then you know what he does? He stops the tempting and he starts the accusing. And he says to you, God will never forgive you for what you just did. That was a horrible thing. Someone who claims to be a Christian... Someone who's been going to church all these years and you did this? He'll never forgive you for this. These are roles that he plays. He is a tempter, he is an accuser, and he's a deceiver. He is a great deceiver. He's a liar and the father of lies. Revelation twelve nine, and the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He deals in lies, little deceptions, craftiness, subtleties, the big lie, but he's always trying to deceive you as one of God's people. He wants you to be fooled, and he'll do it any way he thinks it can work. I heard a story about a man. He was an antiquities dealer, lived on the East Coast, and he was vacationing for a week on the West Coast. And he was in San Francisco with some time to kill. And he was going around from uh, antique store to antique store, just looking around. He was in one store, and he'd gone up and down all the aisles, and he saw things that were pretty much junk in his estimation, things that were overpriced, things that were not worth having. And as he was about to leave, he walked by the manager's counter where the register was, and he saw behind the counter there was a small bowl sitting on the floor with water in it. He bent over without touching it, but he examined it as best he could, and he realized it was from the Ming dynasty, and it was worth tens upon tens of thousands of dollars. And he stepped back, and scratched his chin, and started to think about how he might be able to get that dish at a cheap price. The little uh, cat, the store cat, came up to take a drink of water, and he picked up the cat and was petting the cat as the store manager walked over. And he said, I've seen you looking around, can I help you with anything? He said, no, I don't think so, but I do like this cat. And I'm wondering if you would sell me this cat. Oh, it's just a stray cat, and he just chases mice around, kind of earns his keep in the store. He said, I like this cat. And he pulls out a $100 bill and says, I'll give you $100 for this cat. The owner gladly takes $100, says, done, thank you very much. The man acts as if he's about to leave. He stops and he says, you know, I will need something to feed and water that cat with. How about that dish? Since I'm taking the cat, you won't need it anymore. I'll throw in an extra 10 bucks for that. And the store manager shook his head and he said, oh no. That's a very rare dish and it's worth a lot of money. But you know, the interesting thing is since I've been... Uh, watering the cats in this store, I've sold 17 in the last two months. (laughs) Sometimes when we try to be sneaky, it doesn't work out so well for us. But Satan is an accomplished deceiver. So we need to know our enemy, and then number two, we need to take our stand. So I'm saying this morning, take your stand. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Ephesians 6.13, the word there in the original language is panoply and perhaps you've heard of that. There have been entire books on this passage Uh, what I read, and then the next few verses that follow on the full armor of God. So I'm not going to be able to get through all the items on the list. I'm going to talk about some of them, but right now, I think it's very important to emphasize that we're to stand firm. It is a big deal. We need to stand solidly. We need to be firm in our foundation. It doesn't matter if you are a Christian If you're an 87-year-old widow or a 13-year-old middle schooler, you need to stand firm in your faith. Uh, And this is not just for the Navy SEAL Christians, you know, the super Christians, the super spiritual superstar Christians. This is for every one of us. It's for every one of you. We need to stand firm in our faith. Because it says here that there is a day that's coming, it's an evil day. Now, we might feel like all the days are pretty evil, and I understand, I think that way too sometimes. But this is talking about that evil day when there would be a time of testing, a time of trials, a time of temptation, or a time when you're feeling the accusations of the devil, or a time when you feel like... Somehow you're being deceived, or you're being manipulated by the evil one. You need to stand your ground. Several years back, uh, my wife could tell you exactly how many years back, we went to Japan. I'm not much of a world traveler, but I have been to Japan, because, excuse me, because my son, our oldest, fell in love with a Japanese lady in Japan while he was working over there and they were to be married and uh, I was offered the job so I traveled to Japan to officiate the wedding and it was a couple days before the wedding and I remember being in my son's apartment that day he was gone he was at work And the women were, I don't know what women do with the bride and they're all out. Whatever they do, they were doing it. They weren't there. I was all by myself. And I loved to read, but there were no books to read. Well, there are books in modern Japanese and some in kanji, but of course I couldn't read them. And there were no magazines to look at. And so I turned on the television and there were a handful of stations and most of them were uh, just talking heads, only talking in not English, but Japanese, until I turned on this one channel and it was sumo wrestling. I had never paid any attention to sumo wrestling, but th- these guys were out there doing it. It didn't really look real attractive to me. <laughs> these, these big guys grabbing, each- well, I, I won't get too graphic here. Uh, their garb was not anything I'd want to wear. Uh, and they wrestled around, standing up. This isn't like All-Star wrestling. I remember the day of Vern Gagne and all those guys. They weren't picking guys up and throwing them on the ground and jumping on them and all that. But they just held on to each other, and, or bump into one another. And these guys are massive. And they're inside this ring. It's about t- 10 feet in diameter. And the way they win is to knock a guy off his feet or push him out of the ring. And they win. And I was thinking, you know, this is kind of like what the Lord wants for us. He just wants us to stand there, to stand and be strong, not fall over, not get pushed back out of the way, but to stand firm, depend no, no matter What the force that comes against us, no matter how strong the assault that comes against us, we're to stand firm for us, not against another person, but against the assaults of the evil one, the devil, Lucifer, and his minions of hell. There's a story, I love stories, and uh, I love to share them. This is about an Auburn coach years ago. Coach Shug Jordan was a fantastic coach. He won all kinds of awards and had great years in building a football team in Auburn, in Georgia. And he had playing for him Mike Collin, who was a middle linebacker, big guy, and uh, had gone on after finishing at Auburn to play for... The Miami Dolphins, and uh, Shug, Coach Jordan, had to uh, uh, do some recruiting from high schools, and he wanted to get Mike Collin to help him, because he thought, you know, bringing in a pro football player into high schools, you know, guys would get excited about that, and so uh, Mike still had a house in in the area, and he called him up one day, and he said, "Sure, Coach, I'll help." And he said, what do you want me to do? And he said, well, Mike, you know, you know, there's that guy in football. When someone blocks him and knocks him down, he just stays down. And Mike said, we don't want that guy, do we, coach? And he said, no, Mike, we don't want that guy. Then there's a guy, he gets knocked down, he gets right back up, he gets knocked down again, and then he stays down. Mike said, we don't want that guy either, do we, coach? He said, no, Mike, but Mike, there's that guy. You knock him down, he gets up, you knock him down, he gets up, no matter how many times you knock him down, he gets up again. And Mike Collins says, that's the man we want, coach, right? He said, no, Mike, we want that guy that's been knocking everybody down. (laughs) Well, the devil's that guy that knocks down Christians. And we want, as Christians, to stand Wearing the armor of God, we're just told to stand firm. When the day comes, to stand firm. That's what He wants for us, to be still standing at the end of the day. So we need to know the enemy, and we need to take our stand, and we need to wear the belt of truth. What is the belt? Well, it's the last piece of equipment that we put onto our bodies if we're a soldier. And as I said before, Paul was probably looking at these Roman soldiers and looking at the elements of their garb. It's interesting to me that we still that uh, people in uh, law enforcement or in the military still wear these things. That heavy belt, uh, law officers. I think it's called a Sam Brown. They wear that belt, and it's got their gun on it. It holds their cuffs and all that stuff, and uh, it kind of holds it all together, and uh, so I, I imagine in my mind, being a fan of the Lord of the Rings, Aragorn at the Battle of Helm's Deep, uh, getting ready for battle, and he's got a long tunic on, and he's got his chain mail on, and he puts on that belt, and he, it's a leather belt, it's heavy, he ties it around his waist, it holds his sword, it holds them all together, that kind of thing. And that's a picture of it, a more modern day picture might be, I, I remember when I lived in, in Florida, there was a, a Home Depot that I used to frequent, and uh, I don't window shop a lot, but I can go to Home Depot and go down the aisles, and I'll say, Man, I don't know what that thing is, but I'm pretty sure I need one of those. <laughs> and all the guys are going, Yeah, I got you, baby. Well, they had a tragic accident because uh, they had a, a forklift truck, one of these high loaders. I mean, they had stuff way, like over 30 feet above the concrete floor. And they had some issues up there. I wasn't around that day. Uh, but there was a man up there uh, fussing with the, the materials. He fell 30 feet, hit the concrete floor, and died instantly. Well, Home Depot put into their rules, their law, internal law, that if you're working on a high loader, you had to wear a belt. And the belt had a chain on it hooked back to the forklift truck so that if you fell, it might be a couple feet, but you're not going to, it's not going to end in tragedy. And that belt is there to protect you and to save you and to hold you together when bad things come. And this belt is the belt of truth. Now, here's the question. What is this truth that's being spoken of? And it can really be translated in two different ways. It can be the word of God, the Bible, which is my first thought. Uh, But it can also be translated as personal integrity a life of truth, a a life of honesty, that sort of thing. Well, as are a lot of things in Scripture, it's not an either-or choice. It can be a both-and, and And I think this is a both-and. First of all, um, it's the Word of God. Scripture says, sanctify them. Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And remember, brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus said, this is not just for you, the the apostles, but this is for those that will come. He was talking for you. He is praying for you and for me, even those hundreds upon hundreds of years ago before he went to the cross. He also said earlier You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, this gets bantied about somewhat, and people say, you know, son, if you go to college, you'll learn a lot, and that'll give you a lot of options in the future. The truth will set you free. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth that Jesus, who was the Son of God, lived a sinless life, died, rose again, and if you put your trust in him, you repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's the gospel. And that is the truth, and this is the truth that we know comes into our brains, and we receive this from the word of God. But it's also integrity of life. Ephesians 5.9, just a chapter earlier, says, The fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. The fruit of light. The fruit that is good and right and true. Do you want your life to reflect what is good, what is right, what is true? Boy, I know I do. It's very important. Another scripture that speaks to this, also in Ephesians, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We're to live the truth, we're to speak the truth. We are to be people with lives of integrity because we are living the truth. This is what the belt of truth is talking about. Also, not just what we know, but it's how we live. And you may have heard me say before, we got to get it into our hearts, and then, excuse me, we get it into our heads, and then we come to love it with our affections in the heart, and then it goes out in our hands the way we live. Head, heart, hands. It's a complete package for us. And when it comes to the truth, knowing it, And to living it, we need help. We need help in these areas because we can get it wrong. Uh, I've known Christians who misrepresent, excuse me, that misrepresent the truth. I mean, let me ask you the question. Do you believe everything you hear? I mean, everything on the Internet is true. (laughs) But other than that, no. I've heard people that talk... (laughs) And they're not speaking the truth. Such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, or our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. You know, it's not just the devil who can deceive. You and I can deceive as well. But not when we're living a life of truth. We can misrepresent the truth to others. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. That's what we do. We represent accurately, not inaccurately, to others. Here's one of the worst things we can do. We can deceive ourselves. (laughs) And we do this all the time. And I always say the problem with being deceived is how do you know if you're deceived? Because if you're deceived, you don't know. If you're deceived, you're just deceived. So we get a verse like this, 1 Corinthians 3, 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. I remember seeing a cartoon in in the, the, the New York Magazine genre, Years and years ago, there's this old grizzled man with a big white beard and wearing sandals, and he's walking down the street with a, a sandwich board on. You know what that is? goes over your shoulders, and in front, there's a thin uh, piece of plywood in the front with a message on it, and, and the same on the back. And he's walking down the street, it just says on the front, I am a fool for Christ. And you look at that and think, boy, that looks pathetic. You look at the next square of the cartoon, you see him walking away and on the back of the billboard that he's wearing it says, whose fool are you? I want to be a fool for Jesus. I I don't care about what others know. I want to know Jesus. I want to know him. 1 Corinthians 3.18 speaks to that. But Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. This is James, and I I can't help but think that James is looking back as he writes this, and he's thinking about Jesus teaching Sermon on the Mount, and he talks about two kinds of men building houses. One was a wise man, and he built on solid ground, and the other man was a fool he built on shifting sand. And if you read it carefully, it will tell you what the shifting sand was. The solid ground was the word of God, and the man who was wise heard the words and did them. The foolish man, the shifting sand, was the words of God. He heard the words, but he did not do them. And so it was shifting sand, and his house collapsed, and he came to ruin Don't deceive yourself. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We need to put on a belt of truth, a strong belt that will keep us honest and true, both in what we understand of Scripture and how we live our lives. You don't want a belt made of strings or spider webs, that easily collapses. You want a big, strong, thick belt strapped around you. Let me say something, I don't want anybody to miss this. I'm gonna say it twice. A truthful life is never an accident. Do you hear me? A life of, the, of integrity of truth is never an accident. It's something we must work towards. Okay, we need to know the enemy, and we need to wear the belt of truth, and we need to wear the breastplate of righteousness. What's a breastplate? Well, we all have built-in breastplates. If you feel you can do it right now in your chest. That big bone about the size of your hand or your palm. That's that's your sternum. And you know what it's there for? Protect your heart. Years ago, doctors have better strategies today, but years ago, back in the 80s, I sat with a man, his name was Bill Plank. He had just had open-heart surgery. And I came in to visit with him after the surgery. He had a bunch of bypasses, I think at least four. might have had six bypasses. And, how you doing, Bill? He said, oh, man, I'm hurting. And I said, where's it hurting? Oh, my chest. My heart's good, but my chest... They cut me open and they cut through the sternum and they split my ribs apart so they could get to the heart to work on it. And that's what was really hurting as he was trying to heal up. Surgery was completely successful and he did heal up and he did well. But we need to reinforce that and again, today, don't don't law enforcement and military people do the same thing? with. We talk about bulletproof vests, armored vests to protect the heart and the vital organs. And the breastplate of righteousness, for the, or the breastplate for the Roman soldiers protected those organs. But the breastplate of righteousness that Paul speaks of is that which is to protect your heart that represents that which holds the soul and the spirit of God's in you. And uh, a breastplate can maybe deflect an arrow or a broadsword, but we need this kind of a breastplate of righteousness that will protect us spiritually much more than what the military soldier in Paul's day needed it for. Something that Jesus said, always confused me i I thought about this for a long time before it ever kind of kind of worked its way into me sermon on the mount matthew 520 he says i tell you unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and pharisees you will never enter the kingdom of heaven now from what I understood of the Pharisees, I know there were probably some bad ones, some stinkers in there, but there had to be some Pharisees that were honestly working to do what was right, and they kept the law. They did the hard stuff. They gave their money. They did their tithing. They, they did all of this stuff. They took the scriptures seriously. And Jesus said, you have to be more spiritual than that. You have to be more righteous than that. And I thought about my life at the time, and I thought, man, i nobody's going to look at Lanny and think he's an icon of righteousness. What's going on? Well, doing the right things might be one way of looking at righteousness, but I think what Jesus emphasized, well, it can be taken in two ways, but the righteousness of Christ is talked about here in Philippians 3.9. Be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own. This is Paul saying he wanted to be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. And I learned of what justification was and that it was imputed righteousness. It was a legal term, meaning that this is how God is going to look at me or a judge might, you stand before a judge, an earthly judge, and he might declare you not guilty. He is imputing to you that you're free from the charge against you. And that's the first part. The way I learned justification is justification is just as if I'd never sinned. And that's absolutely true. But that's only part of it. The other part is of justification is that when God the Father looks down upon you, He not only sees a person who is free of sin, free of impurities free of being unwholesome, but he sees the very righteousness of his dear Son, who lived an impeccable life of righteousness. So for every good deed, every positive teaching, every righteous act and thought and prayer of Christ, is what the Father sees when he looks at me? Are you kidding? No. That's what justification is. This is called imputed righteousness. But wait, there's more. 1 <laughs> Timothy says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue, pursue righteousness. Wait a minute, I thought justification was God's job. Well, it is, but pursue Righteousness. Godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. You see, this is imparted righteousness. This is what God not just imputes to you in a, you might think of it even kind of theoretical, legal way, but is a practical, down-to-earth, day-by-day thing. We talk about sanctification, acting, thinking, living more like Jesus. This is what this imparted righteousness is all about. And what Jesus is saying, first of all, we need this legal, forensic declaration of God, of justification. That makes us way more righteous than any Pharisee ever was in and of himself. That's why Jesus said, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, and then we need to live it. And I don't think that's either or. I think that one's a both and too. Both of those things need to be present. When you said yes to Jesus, and I'm assuming at some point in your life you have said yes to Jesus, uh, you enlisted in the army, or the military, if you prefer, There's no alternative short of fighting than desertion. And that's where we stand. But we don't like to think of it that way. Vietnam was my war. Back in the 60s, when I was coming of age, when I graduated from high school, you basically had three choices. You could go to college, and that's what I did, or you could go to Canada to escape the draft. It was not a voluntary military in those days. It was a draft. Or you could go to Vietnam. Those were the three choices. And I had friends that went to Vietnam that did not come home alive. And for veterans of Vietnam that came home, no one ever said thank you for your service, or I shouldn't say no one, but it was more typical for someone to spit on you and call you a baby killer. That was that war. Things changed. And we became uh, a voluntary. We had a voluntary military. Um, I'm glad things changed that way. So when people, veterans, come home, people do say thank you for your service and mean it, and that's great. But something happened with people... In, it was in the army that I read this article years ago. At the outbreak of the, the Persian Gulf War, 1990 thereabouts, there were people in the military that said, no, we won't go over there and fight. They go, what? You're in the army. We didn't join the army to fight. We wanted to learn about computers or motors or, you know, whatever it was. And they had no idea that they'd ever be called on to fight, and they were trying to figure out how to get out of their armed forces without fighting. That wasn't everybody. It was a small contingency, but it happened. How can this be? Can this be true in the church? They were saying, oh, wait a minute. I didn't join up for this. I want the good stuff. I don't like this idea of wrestling with the devil and standing firm and all this stuff. I like my comfort. I know I do. But there has to be more than that. Anybody recognize this picture? You know what this is? It's a ship. (laughs) This is the Queen Mary. Mary. Its maiden voyage was in 1936. It was a very much a pleasure uh, ship. Beautiful appointments. That's one of the staterooms. The dining room. Here's a picture. All the tables groaning with good food, and there's more back in the kitchen once those things are eaten. Uh, It was quite a deal. But then, aggression came in Europe, and the Queen Mary, sailing out of England, was put to a different use. It was a time of war. That beautiful ship was painted gray for better camouflage, and it became known as the Gray Ghost, and where at one point uh, it had 3,000 guests on board. Uh, it was conscripted into service and not three thousand people on board in those comfortable state rooms, eight as much as eighteen thousand soldiers crowded in in bunks, sometimes stacked, I've read, as high as eight high, crowded into that ship. The tables, as I showed you on a previous slide, very momentarily, were ornately, you know, they measure how far the knife and the fork are from the edge and everything is precise when they set it out. And the the wealthy patrons had an, a dazzling array of silver spoons and knives and forks. and And no less than 15 Plates, saucers, glasses, and cups at each setting. When soldiers were there, it was just a metal tray with indentations. They had their spoon issued them. They kept it in their pocket. They had their cup stuck on the bottom of their canteen, so there was no need of all these appointments, just that tray with their food plopped on. The plate, not very elegant, but she served a purpose. By the way, you can still see the Queen Mary. She is now docked in Southern California with regular tours, and even I, I think you can rent overnight spaces on the Queen Mary. COVID kind of got in the way for a while. I don't, don't, you want to go out and try and book, it's okay, but um, it's still there a peacetime vessel made ready for war. And I prefer comfort and pleasure and all the accoutrements that life has to afford over pain and difficulty and suffering. But God may not call you to one all the time. He may call you to both. Do you notice here in this passage, and you can go back and look at the other uh, uh, elements or elements of objects of armor, but never does it say you are to go out and go looking for trouble. You are to stand, stand your ground with the armor of God. And I talked about truth, and I talked about righteousness, and there are others helmet, shoes, sword, shield, so forth. You can read those on your own. But we are called to stand. And the puritans told us, oh, it's not just the sword of the spirit, there's another weapon, offensive weapon, and they called it all prayer, because at the end of this passage it says and we are to pray. That's our job. That's our task. That's our assignment. We are to stand and we are to pray. We are to resist the schemes, the plans, the wiles of the devil. And we are to stand following our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's my very sober message for you dear folks today. I pray that this will be the case that we will not be lulled to sleep by all the luxury in which we live, but we'll think about what we need to do as soldiers of Christ, and that that would be our inmost desire. Let me close with prayer. Father, you are so good. You give us your righteous and truthful word. If we will just take it, And live it and love it so that our lives reflect the image of your dear Son. Help us to stand fast and not be deceived, not let the accuser send us astray. Help us to focus on Christ. And I thank you, Lord, for your people, the church. And I thank you for all that's happening in these days. And I thank you, Lord, that I can be counted a small part of it. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.